The word of the Lord this morning is from Luke 8, verses 4 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler in the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, he did declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And he laughed at her, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. The Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Bless us, O God, of all creation. We thank you for this word. Lord, you spoke in the beginning and all things came to be. You spoke and your word came to live within us, full of grace and truth. Bless this place now where we would hear your voice. Bless this place where we would hear your story. And as we listen, may our hearts be attuned to you. As the word is spoken, may you speak to us. May all we hear lead us to you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I don't want to be long before you this morning, but I want us to see something about this powerful story in Luke's Gospel. And just to kind of billboard um, what, what, our, what this passage is teaching us is it exhorts us to trust and believe in Jesus, something we know we should do. It encourages us that uh, Jesus cares about us and responds to our faith, something we may doubt from time to time. And it shows us that we shouldn't wait till we're desperate to come before Jesus, to come to him. Now, there's a lot going on in here in this passage, and I want to kind of do a quick recap for a clearer picture of what's going on. Last week we've been discussing, uh, we were discussing how Jesus sailed to the other side of the Galilee and was in the country of the Gerasenes where he encountered a demoniac, a man with multiple demons inside of him. If you were here last week, you remember that story. Jesus' awesome power over the forces of Satan and the devil. And now he's come back and sailed back across the Galilee and is back in his home turf. And of course, people hearing what Jesus had done, they've run out to greet Jesus. There's always a crowd now. We're at, we're, at, we're at this point in the gospel narratives 
where Jesus can't really go anywhere without being mobbed by a crowd. And as Jesus is walking through the community, a ruler of the synagogue, Luke tells us, comes out to talk to Jesus. And this is an important man. And it means that he was the president of his synagogue congregation. He's the guy responsible for putting the worship service together. He may not be the rabbi, but he's the closest thing to the rabbi in the congregation. He's a chief elder, the number one guy. And he's important in the community. He's an important man in the community. And he serves God. He serves God in the synagogue, and he's active in the community, and he believes in the scriptures. He's one of the faithful. He's one of the good guys. And yet his daughter, we're told, is on her deathbed. It says, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she lay dying. The word there in the original language does not mean she was sick with a terminal disease and would die one day. It meant that she was literally breathing her last breaths. If you can imagine the scenario, your daughter is, is breathing her last breaths and you run out of the house in that moment, that desperation. This morning we're talking about desperate faith. And tragedy strikes us and our faith becomes desperate. You know, when you're suffering and there are trials and tribulations, it can cause us to despair. Despair is defined as the absence of hope about the future. And this man is on the verge of despair. His faith is desperate. He had an only daughter who is about to die. And he hears that Jesus is coming through town. Now, if you think, just get in your head, get in, in your mind for a moment what Jairus is going through. In the Middle East, um, a girl, when she hit 13, she became a woman in, in Jewish culture. In fact, it's still like that today. In West County, we have a Jewish population, and when the boys and girls hit 13, they have their bar mitzvahs and their bat mitzvahs, and that's when they become adults. And so, if you can think about what's going on in his heart, his daughter is sick unto death and is going to miss out, as far as he can tell, on all those wonderful things, marriage, which is in front of her, a family, grandchildren, there's all these things that are being threatened and jeopardized. And you can, you can just imagine the grief because all of his hopes for her as a father lay in the balance. And in the middle of this large crowd pressing in, this important man empties himself of his pride and falls down pleading with Jesus to come to his house. You know, it's hard to be proud when you're desperate. And that's some people's problem, isn't it? Uh, they're not desperate enough. They don't see any use for Jesus because, well, they're not desperate enough. They have not had tragedy strike home. Uh, they don't see a, a need for him. Like the rest of the crowd, it's just a spectacle. Jesus is a spectacle. He's something for uh, weak people, superstitious people, unscientific people, ignorant people. But as Jesus starts heading to his house, I can see Jesus walking, and, and the ruler says, my daughter is sick, and Jesus says, okay, let's go. And as they're walking, and the crowd is pressing in, someone else comes into the mix of our story this morning. Luke says a woman who had a discharge of blood 
for 12 years. Now that's interesting that Jairus' daughter is 12, and this woman has an issue of blood for 12 years, the entire length of Jairus' daughter's life. Maybe that's a way for us to kind of just understand the gravity of a woman menstruating for over a decade, 12 long years. If you're a man, you can't even fathom it. If you're a woman, you shriek at the idea that a woman would have would, would hemorrhage for 12 years. Um, it was embarrassing. And it wasn't just a personal problem. She couldn't be intimate. Couldn't worship in the temple because it made her ritually unclean. You know, she didn't just have a personal problem. She had a spiritual problem. This is not just a matter of hygiene and personal health. She is ostracized from the, from the community because she's impure. She can't be intimate with a man. Who knows if she's even married. Maybe she was married and that fizzled because of her condition. Can't come to the temple to worship. And no one wants to touch her because if you touch a menstruating woman, according to the law of Moses, you were unclean. So she comes into the crowd and violates convention and norms and reaches out for Jesus. And here are these two lonely people in an excited crowd. And tragedy has visited the both of them. You know, when there's deep pain in your life, you can be surrounded by people and still be lonely. Isn't that true? Have you ever experienced that? You know, when, when, you've, when you've been suffering deeply, you can be surrounded by crowds of people and still feel alone. Because that's what tragedy does. That's what suffering does. It isolates you. It makes you feel alone because you feel that it's just impossible for people to know what you're going through. For them to empathize. And Luke himself is a physician, and he writes this interesting Side note, he says that she had spent all her living on physicians but couldn't be healed by anyone. Luke is a doctor and he's saying even the doctors couldn't heal her. And it wasn't because they were charlatans. Maybe that's what we think. It's because they couldn't fix it. It was beyond their expertise. It was beyond their skill and their training. They couldn't, they couldn't help her and she had spent all her living on these doctors, which meant that she was in now not just physical, you know, physical problems. She didn't just have physical problems. She was in financial ruin, spent all of her money. And what they both have in common is their desperation, but they also have in common this faith, this hope that Jesus is more than just a spectacle, that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a nice man, right? I mean, even people in the first century are fighting against the clamoring voices of the skeptics. Well, he was not a prophet of God. He's just a good man, good teaching. He's a nice guy. He led a life that should be emulated, but nothing more than that. Well, they're hoping that that's not true. They're hoping that Jesus is actually more than just a good man, that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. They're hoping that Jesus actually is who he says he is. They're not exactly sure who Jesus is, right? They don't say he's the Messiah, the Son of God, but there's a hope there. And you know, hope is contrasted to fear because fear tells us a story about our future that is bleak and dark. And what hope does is it helps us imagine 
a future for ourselves different than the one we currently have. And they had hope. And it says in verse 44, she came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus, not feeling the touch, right? He didn't, he didn't feel her touch him personally. It says she touched the fringe or the hem of his garment. You know, Orthodox Jews have tassels that hang out of their garments. It could have been that. It just could have been the edge of his clothing. And it's a daring move because whoever she touches is made unclean by it. So she doesn't want to tell Jesus anything. She's just hoping that some kind of connection with cosmic divine power is going to do something. And Jesus stops right in the middle of his journey to Jairus' house. There's a lot going on here. Jesus is walking. Maybe Jairus is saying, come on, come on, come on. And Jesus is saying, okay, okay, we're coming. And this happens, and Jesus stops right there, and he says, who touched me? Of course, Peter gets frustrated by this, right? Peter, you got to love Peter, you know? I mean, Peter's the one apostle who gets an attitude with Jesus a lot, you know? I feel like I, rec- I identify with Peter, you know? I'd be the one getting rebuked by Jesus all the time, you know? And Peter says, what do you mean, who touched you? We're being crushed by the crowd. And Jesus said, no, I felt power go out from me. And what's interesting is the King James Version says, uh, has Jesus saying, I felt virtue leave me. Which is fitting because her illness for 12 years has robbed her of virtue. Jesus says, I felt virtue, I felt power go out from me. My favorite commentator on Luke, Joel Green, he says, this is where the real test of the woman begins. Everything she's experienced has been in seclusion, privately, but Jesus calls upon her to acknowledge her actions to the whole crowd. He's outing her. Jesus is is moving this woman from isolated ritual impurity to public proclamation. Will she give in to fear, or will she respond in faith? We already told you what was at stake. She would be guilty of essentially making Jesus impure. She didn't want that. In fact, when Jesus says, who touched me, she, along with the rest of the crowd, denies it initially. She doesn't say anything, but when she realizes that everyone knows she's the one, she, I can see her probably standing there trembling while you know the crowd just moves out from her, and she's left there standing alone. And when the woman saw in verse 47 that she wasn't hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people, right, she had no choice now, that she was the one who touched him. And she had been immediately healed. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Years of agony and embarrassment are reversed in one brief touch. It's not because the touch alone had any power. It's not the action of touching Jesus. I could have preached a sermon, you know, touching Jesus or something like that. But it wasn't the touch. In fact, the touch was motivated by something else, and that was faith. And we might want to ask the question, What is it about faith? You know, why couldn't she just say a few prayers or 
or do a few rituals, right? You know, maybe go like this ten times and she's healed, or say, you know, I mean, what, what is it about faith? Well, the only thing I can deduce from the story is that faith is entirely other. It's not something that is self-contained, because when you have faith, something has to be the object of that faith. I remember shortly after 9-11, I was I shared with you, I, I've shared this many times, I worked in a grocery store, and I remember one of the guys who came in all the time was from Brooklyn, but now this is out in California. And he came in and he said, yo, you know what happened? I said, yeah, you know. I mean, everyone was, there was a sense of camaraderie and solidarity. We wanted to make sure we were all on the same page because the nation was afraid, you know. And he says, yeah, we'll get them, we'll get them. <laughs> I said, yeah, you know. And he says, and as he goes to walk away, we chatted for about 20 minutes. As he goes to walk away, he said, keep the faith. I said, you know. And at the time, at that time, I was a youth pastor. And I said, yeah, you know. Like, what church do you go to? And I want to have a conversation about Jesus. He goes, oh, I don't go to church. I said, oh, but you're a Christian. He goes, no, 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 I'm not a Christian. Oh. And, and, and as he walked away, I remember thinking to myself, well, faith in what? Keep the faith? Listen, when Jesus... When Jesus tells this woman, your faith has made you whole, he's not saying it's just good to have faith because faith is powerful in and of itself, as if just believing something is going to, good, is going to happen to you will make it come to you. That's not what he's saying. Jesus recognizes that he personally is the object of her faith. And so when he commends her faith and says, your faith has made you well, what he's saying is, because you believed in me. You've been made well. Faith has no power in and of itself. The object of our faith makes all the difference in the world. What you're believing in, what you trust in, what you put your hope in. Do you put your hope in yourself? Your finances, your retirement? You know, I think the recession a few years back proved to us that wise financial planning isn't, you know, the, shouldn't be the foundation of our security and well-being. I talked to people who lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, and if you were in the market for a long time, you felt like you were going to come back. But if you were, you know, retirement, and you know, you're you're up there in years, it's game over for you. What is the object of your faith? Is it Christ and His power, or are you just believing in yourself? Are you just believing in faith for faith's sake? That's not what He commends here. And in the middle of all of this, someone runs out to Jairus and says. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And just those words falling on the ears of a father. Like I said, there's a lot going on here. And he says, it's too late. And Jesus, without skipping a beat, says, don't fear, only believe, and she'll be well. If Jairus is tempted to collapse in despair, right? We're talking about desperate faith and how tragedy causes us to despair sometimes. Trials cause us to despair. And if he's tempted to collapse in despair at this moment that his 12-year-old daughter is dead, well, he's just seen Jesus do a miracle. In fact, it's almost as if this woman and the miracle that Jesus just performs with her is somewhat of a living prop 
to prop up Jairus' faith. Because if he was tempted to collapse in devastation, well, he's just seen Jesus do a miracle on the way to healing his daughter. And so his faith is propped up. His, his fear is suspended in midair, if you will. His doubt may be that Jesus can't really do it. It's on hold. It's almost like the pause button has been hit because he's just heard horrible news, but he's just seen an amazing miracle. And so he goes with Jesus, and Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, you know, even Jesus couldn't be close to everybody, right? He was close to those three people. That was his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And they go into the house, and Jesus grabs the parents, Jairus and his wife, and they go in, and there's a weeping group, a crowd of people weeping and mourning and wailing. Because in Jewish culture, you didn't mourn over somebody for a day and then figure out what you were going to do. You buried people the exact same day. So at the moment of her death, they're probably already planning to bury her. And of course, there is a ritual of mourning. My mother's Jewish, and she would tell me about when relatives would die, they would hire professional mourners. That's just what they do in the Jewish faith. And people would come, and it, would, it, would, it was called sit in Shiva. And that meant that, that people would sit and mourn and wail and lament for someone who passed away. They had professional mourners, so no doubt people are mourning and weeping for this girl. And Jesus comes into the house and says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And of course, what do they do? They laughed at him. In fact, the, the word in the original language means to ridicule scornfully. They weren't laughing because they thought it was funny. They had contempt for Jesus' words. In fact, the King James says they laughed him to scorn. And Jesus is unfaded by it. Praise the Lord for that. He just brushes it right off. And he comes into the house, unaffected by the ridicule, takes the girl by the hand in verse 54, and said, Child, arise, grabs her by the hand, and we're told her spirit returned to her. And she got up at once. I mean, I don't even get out of bed at once, you know, in the morning. You know, I have to, you know. And, you know, now that I'm in my 40s, it hurts to get up. You know, and she doesn't, you know, wake up slowly. She's, you know, you can see her just like, like a springboard popping right up out of bed. Jesus says the word, child arise, and immediately she's up and alert. And Jesus directed, it says, that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. There is, there is this theory from theologians that a lot of what Jesus does and who he is, they call it the messianic secret. Because there's this thread throughout the Gospels that you know, Jesus doesn't go, ha, 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 see? See what I did? You know, he's above that. In fact, a miracle is not even for the crowd. It's for that family for mom and dad, and it's for her. The miracle that Jesus did is to boost their faith because salvation has come to them. He doesn't care who believes it or not. You know, I mean, he's not trying to defend his identity. Yes, Jesus cares that people believe, but that's not what's going on here. 
Jesus has brought salvation to this home for their sake. Two people with desperate faith. Two people brought to the brink of despair. And Jesus answers their requests. You know, suffering and tragedy, as I mentioned earlier, can cause us to despair and give up hope and see black clouds on the horizon of our life in the future. And those are stories that we tell ourselves and the devil tells us, but those aren't God's stories for us. And part of the despair in our culture is a result, it's a symptom of the postmodern age we live in. And the postmodern age understands everything on a micro level. Knowledge and truth are contextual. They're constructed. Reality only comes into existence through our interpretation of what the world means to us individually. There are no big truths. There are no grand stories about the world. The world only has meaning in so much as we fill it personally with meaning. This is one of the reasons why someone can call, can call a disgusting sculpture art or something like that, right? Because we live in a postmodern age, and the postmodernism is defined by self-referentiality. I decide what's true. I personally decide what's right. There are no real objective truths. I have my own truth. Jesus may be good for you, but he's not for me. I have my own way. You know, we don't even have to have faith in some culturally imperial ideal like God. We can just have faith in faith. Because faith is characterized, as I mentioned, by self-referentiality, right? What we think it should be. Now, Hebrews 11 tells us what faith is. It tells us what faith is supposed to be. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence and conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received God's approval, and by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of the things that are visible. It's not saying we should just blindly believe. What it's saying is we believe in something that though we can't see it, does correspond to an objective reality. I'll unpack that again. Even though we can't see the object of our faith, God, because God is not visible in the way that we're visible to each other, it does not mean that the object of our faith does not correspond to an objective reality. It absolutely does. God is real. And the world we live in, and the world we see every day, the mountains and the clouds and the oceans are proof that an invisible God exists because of the visible world that we live in and see every single day. Don't wait until you're desperate to come to faith. I don't know where you are individually in your own walk with the Lord. Maybe you have no walk with the Lord. But don't wait to come to faith in Jesus. It's not faith in ourselves, our own certainty of the world, but it's faith in something completely opposite, faith in God. And somewhere in Israel are the unmarked graves of these two women who were the first people to receive faith's promise of salvation. 
Your faith has saved you. That's the word in the original language, sozo. When he says your faith has made you whole, he's saying your faith has saved you. You've been saved by faith. One herself believing in Jesus and the other raised from the dead because of someone else's faith on her account who believed for her. Now, why is it hard to believe? I've just admonished you, I've exhorted you to have faith, to believe. But why is it hard to believe? Well, um, it's hard sometimes to believe because the devil markets in doubt. There are commercials for the devil everywhere in our culture, right? Suffering that we see on television, we hear about, we read in the newspaper, tragedy and suffering in our own lives, the daily suffering in the world, the tears of a thousand disappointments, and the pain of unanswered prayers. There are commercials for doubt everywhere, even privately. And it makes us doubt ourselves, and it makes us wonder whether God really loves us. But Jesus' words to this man and this woman are the same words he speaks to us today. Don't be afraid, only believe. Because even unanswered prayers, prayed in faith, and even a life snuffed out by disease that believes until the last moment, until the last breath, is still a victorious life. A life that was lived in faith, by faith, propped up by faith. And the strength of our faith is not nearly as important as the object of our faith, which is Jesus. And we're reminded in this story that it's not great faith that saves, but faith in a great Savior. Let's pray. Father of glory, now give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts with hope and with faith, that we may know the hope for which we've been called in the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.